All right, let's take our Bibles tonight and look together at the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke. We've gone through our overview series. We've brought it to its completion. We're catching a few books that were skipped along the way uh, or books that were covered but that were lost in terms of their recording. I think it is good to have a, a, a touch of redundancy. I'm doubtful that there are any of you who can remember the substance of our Luke overview, so I trust you'll be helped by the time that we have together tonight in the Gospel of Luke. It is a little bit different, kind of going back, we're, we're just catching the, the leftovers, so to speak, here at the end of this series, and, and so we've kind of been jumping from book to book, going in order uh, of the books that are remaining, but, uh, but, but skipping several along the way. We've, we've moved from Matthew right over the Gospel of Mark to the Gospel of, of Luke tonight. In contrasting Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, we might say that the Gospel of Matthew is about Jesus, the son of David. We talked about the kingly line of Jesus as it's presented in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. The genealogy of Jesus is traced there back to, to David, and even traced beyond David back to Abraham. And the significance, it seems, of that is that both Abraham and David were kingly figures. David is a king in the proper sense, but Abraham, for all intents and purposes, is the king of his own kingdom. He ha enjoys such wealth and such influence in the ancient East that at one point, Abraham's army beats the army of a collection of city-states who have amassed an army together, and Abraham beats them. That's a pretty big deal, right? And, and so the emphasis in that genealogy, and in my estimation, the emphasis in much of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus Christ is king. Not only is he king, but he is the king we have been longing for, the king we have been looking for, the king we have so desperately needed. Luke takes a, a different perspective, a, a different emphasis on the life of Jesus. It's not depicting two different Jesuses, but different aspects of Jesus' life. In fact, Luke contains its own genealogy, which goes back well beyond the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. The genealogy in Luke's gospel in chapter 3 carries the ancestral line of Jesus all the way back to Adam, the very first man. So whereas Matthew is about Jesus, the son of David, Luke seems to have its focus on Jesus, the son of Adam. And the emphasis across the gospel of Luke is on the humanity of Jesus. John's gospel, a strong emphasis on Jesus' divinity. But here in, in Luke's gospel, a strong emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. Jesus is a compassionate servant that draws near his people, come to seek and to save that which was lost, one who puts the needs of others even above his own. By word, Luke, who we come to know as a physician in Colossians chapter 4, and he seems to be a Gentile, as we find in the Apostle Paul's writing, is by word one of, one of the major contributors to the New Testament. It's Luke, it's the Apostle Paul, and it's John. In other words, if you do word count, Luke writes more of the New Testament than anyone else. And I'll share with you my own personal theory 
that Luke is actually the author of the book of Hebrews. If you count Hebrews to Luke's credit, then, then he is by far, word for word, the most substantial contributor to the writing of the New Testament. So Luke is a remarkable figure. The Apostle Paul would reflect at the end of his life, only Luke is with me. When all of his friends had forsaken him, and in many cases not because they were motivated to forsake him, but because the needs of ministry compelled them to go. When everyone else had gone, Luke was still at the Apostle Paul's side. There seems to be this precious friendship that existed between those two men. He is identified as a physician. That doesn't necessarily mean physician in the terms that we consider a, a physician in our day and age. It's certainly a pre-scientific approach to medicine, but he does seem to serve as a physician nonetheless, meeting and ministering to the needs of the Apostle Paul along the way. And in my understanding, it was Luke's role at the Apostle Paul's side that likely led to the insight that he bears in the Gospel of Luke as well as in the book of Acts. Luke and Acts are sort of sister letters. Luke provides for us this chronological or orderly accounting of the life and ministry of Jesus, and then the book of Acts comes along to provide this orderly accounting for the early history of the church. In fact, if you look back to Luke chapter 1, we'll just start there in Luke chapter 1. He makes fairly clear what his agenda is here in the book and how he's approached the task of recording for us an accounting of Jesus' life. Verse 1, the Bible says, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I've carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. And likewise, at the beginning of the book of Acts, Luke makes mention of Theophilus as the books seem to be dedicated to this Theophilus, this Gentile believer in the gospel. Traditionally, or at least most of the time, when we read that statement in Luke 1 or a similar statement in Acts 1, we're operating under the impression that Luke has a, an audience of one in view when he writes the Gospel of Luke or when he writes the book of Acts. But the, the truth is that in the first century, when a benefactor signed on to sponsor the writing of a work like this, in our day and age, paper's cheap, right? Like if you make a mismark, you just ball it up and you chunk it. But in a first century setting, you need a benefactor to publish a work the size of, of the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts. Usually the way you would pay homage or, or dedicate a writing to one that had provided financing for your writing project was to structure the introduction in just this way. It bears the appearance of writing a letter to or writing a book to an individual, but it's really just a, a sort of literary way of, of paying homage or tribute to one who's provided for the financing of this project. The likelihood is Theophilus knew Jesus at this point. Perhaps he had been uh, come to faith under Paul's ministry, under Luke's ministry, or in any number of ways. And now Theophilus, 
as presumably a wealthy individual has a desire to see this message advanced in all of the known world. Theophilus wants to be a meaningful part of kingdom advancing work and so serves as the financier for the writing of the Gospel of Luke and the writing of the book of Acts. If you've ever wondered about the length of scrolls in the first century, you needn't wonder any longer. There is a reason that Luke is about as long as it is, and there is a reason that Acts is about as long as it is, and both of them happen to be about the same length, because that's about all you could get on a scroll. And God, in his infinite wisdom and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, works within all of those historical circumstances in order to preserve for us the message, this orderly sequence of Jesus' life as told in the Gospel of Luke. Luke makes it clear here that he's writing on the basis of the testimony of eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed down to he and to others. It was just a couple of weeks ago on a Sunday morning that I suggested that there is a reason that Luke writes with added insight in regards to the birth of Jesus Christ. When we made reference to this when dealing with Jesus' address of the church at Ephesus. John the Apostle settles in the city of Ephesus and becomes the bishop of that church. John is also given responsibility of providing for the needs of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And tradition says that she would have settled in Ephesus the same way John did. Well, Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, was founded by the Apostle Paul, and it was founded by the Apostle Paul in a season and time when Luke was at his side. I would argue that Luke probably had exposure to Mary, as did the church in Ephesus, and therefore he is able to provide a level of insight with regards to Jesus' birth and early life that other gospel writers simply cannot provide for us. We get a depth of insight here that we don't find in Matthew, Mark, or John. You might be interested to know that uh, Luke is, is not going it alone here. About 60% of the content of Mark's gospel is cited or included in some shape, form, or fashion in the gospel of Luke. We know that Mark came before, and there is interdependence in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke as well. They're working with what is available to them, and in the case of Luke, it's Mark and Matthew that is available to him. So he's, he's accounting for all that we know by oral tradition, by the testimony of eyewitnesses, and the recordings that we have in the Gospels of Mark and Matthew, the message that is now handed down for, to us as the Gospel of Luke. I've included in the outline that you've received tonight a couple of key themes. The first of those is Jesus and John as infants, children, and young ministers. Again, there's a fair amount of detail that's included there. It is an astonishing thing to me to think that there was a time when Jesus was a child, when he was learning, when he was toddling, when he was babbling, when he was crawling, and even learning to walk. I don't know all the ins and outs of how that must have looked like for the Son of God to navigate that period of time in life, but I, I'm confident that it looked much different than my children babbling and cooing and needing various things. I don't know what it would have looked like, but I bet it looked better than it does at my house. What about you? Here, again, we have some insight here into the early life of Jesus that is unique to Luke's gospel. A second key theme that you see in the Gospel of Luke is that Jesus is nearest to those who need him the most. 
he takes this completely countercultural approach to the establishment of his kingdom. Even the way Jesus interacts with women in the Gospel of Luke, not just in the Gospel of Luke, but but there's an emphasis here, I think, in Luke's Gospel. If, if If you think about what others sought to do in the ancient world in gathering together a group of people or establishing power or prominence or creating, in the most base of terms, a, a new religion. You would want men as a part of that, right? In a, patri- in a purely patriarchal society that, that did not value in the same ways we do this side of the cross with the understanding that Jesus grants through his word and by the direction of his spirit, they just simply did not value women. And yet Jesus always has time, it seems, He's drawing near in these special ways. A woman with an issue of blood touches the hem of his garment and immediately she's healed. There's there's mercy that's expressed in Jesus' ministry toward women again and again and again and again. Obviously, there are examples of that in other gospel accounts as well, but it seems to be a point of, of focus here. Like other gospels, Jesus does not schmooze the religious establishment, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and even the high priest, or even political authorities, but chooses to make his place among sinners and tax collectors and the least of these. More so than in other gospels, Jesus has a place in his life for those who need him the most and doesn't in any way, shape, form, or fashion prioritize themselves to enjoy a degree of power. His commitment was not to social action, overthrowing the government, hobnobbing with the wealthy, finding his place among the highly esteemed, or advancing some worldly agenda. His exclusive commitment was to the word of God and the will of God, to seeking out and rescuing those who had lost their sense of value, meeting the needs of all who recognized their immense need for him. So I kind of got carried away. You've probably seen your outline. I got 10 full passages that serve as key text. There's a very low likelihood that we make it through all of those 10 key texts, but you'll at least have the outline at your disposal when our time together tonight has, has, is done. We're going to skip over that first key text, Luke 1, 1 through 4. We read that and we made reference to those three questions and I think in some ways answered that uh, for you. But I I do want us to look at this second key text because it it demonstrates for the first time in Luke's gospel the focus that we're going to find here of Jesus emphasizing the needs of the downtrodden. Look at Luke 1, 46. This is Mary's song. Here's a good Bible interpretation principle. We'll get to this on Sunday morning in Revelation as well because this is not only true in narrative genre passages, it's also true in apocalyptic. In certain writing styles, here's a little interpretive uh, pointer. Often when there's a long narrative passage, because across time it's understood that sometimes stories, although they communicate with a great deal of power, can require a, a lot of thought and effort at ascertaining the moral of the story. In you know, the little ch- children's books or children's movies, you, you get a little bit of a story or you get a 10 or 15 minute video and then someone comes on to inform you at the end, this is the moral of the story. 
or even maybe a grandparent would tell you a story and then at the end they would say, you know what the moral of the story is? And then they'd unpack it. Once you're you're clear as to the moral of the story, it makes all the sense in the world. But sometimes when it comes to storytelling, we need a little direction with regards to interpretation. I always warn pastors, every young preacher wants to preach from a narrative passage in his first sermon because they're captivating and, and there's a turn of phrase that catches our attention and they're they're moving, and I, and I always warn them, don't do that, don't, because you, will, you can butcher a narrative passage faster than any other passage in the Bible. There are just challenges there with interpreting narrative passages sometimes. So there are some helps that the passage will provide us. One of the things that narrative will do is provide us with a song or a quotation, a lengthy poem that contains all of the basic theological substance that's going to be taught immediately after that. So like in Revelation, one of the ways that that John provides us with boundaries for interpretation is in the songs that the angels sing before the throne of Jesus. So if you're reading an obscure passage that you may not understand well and you're coming to a theological conclusion that is not reflected in the song or the poem or the quotation that it comes in proximity to, you've missed it. Now what's happening here in Luke 1, 46 through 55 is that Mary is singing a song of praise for the great favor the Father has shown her in allowing that she would be the mother of Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. And packaged in this song of Mary is the basic doctrinal substance of the whole gospel of Luke. Every theological concept expressed in the gospel of Luke is reflected here in these few verses. Mary said, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of of his slave. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, mindful of his mercy, just as he spoke to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Now among the various points of emphasis here in Mary's song is the idea that God is dealing graciously with the humble, but he is actively resisting the proud. It's not the rich or the wealthy that have found favor with God, But the lowly in spirit, those who are impoverished, those who are humble, he's been pleased to draw near and show added grace and mercy. And certainly that proves to be the case across the gospel of Luke. In chapter 4 and verse 16, Jesus is back in his hometown, Nazareth. And he would be rejected in his hometown. It was here in Nazareth, that Jesus would reveal his character, what he's up to. He introduces himself for who he is here, but again emphasizes that it's those who are unworthy that he has come from. I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 16. 
He came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began by saying to them, Today, as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. They were all speaking well of him and were amazed by the gracious words that came from his mouth. Yet they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? Then he said to them, No doubt you'll quote this proverb to me. Doctor, heal yourself, so all we've heard that took place in Capernaum do here in your hometown also. And he also said, I assure you, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. Now he's good until this point, right? Everything's going great. He's, he's, he's at the homecoming service at, at Nazareth Synagogue. And by God's providence, he opens the scroll to read, and it just happens to roll open to Isaiah 61. One of the clearest and most powerfully messianic passages in all of the Old Testament. And Jesus begins to read. He rolls up the scroll and takes a seat. This is the way you went about preaching. You didn't stand to preach in those days, but, but sat down. I used to really razz my preacher friends who sat in chairs like this, at tables like this on Sunday mornings to preach because I, I just accused them of trying to be hipster preachers. Now that I preach three services on Sunday morning, I got to tell you, it looks pretty good. <laughs> but the, the approach in the first century was not to stand to preach, but but to read standing from the scroll out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word, following the pattern of Ezra the priest, and then to be seated to instruct the congregation. He says again in verse 24, I assure you no prophet is accepted in his hometown, but I say to you, and here's where the trouble begins, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's day, the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah wasn't sent to any of them, but to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had serious skin diseases, yet not one of them was healed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now, what does the widow at Zarephath in Sidon and Naaman the Syrian have in common? They were Gentile people. In fact, in the estimation of the people of Israel, they were unworthy of the miracle from God they received. But those happened to be in Elijah and Elijah's ministry, the very kind of people they were searching after. And Jesus includes these examples from Israel's history to make this note, that just as it was in the days of Elijah and Elisha, I have come to seek out and to save that which was lost. What has, in the estimation of so many, lost its value, I've come to restore in full. And packaged in that message, as difficult as it was for the religious establishment to hear, was an invitation. That if you'll only come to see, if you'll only come to regard yourself as unworthy of the grace and the favor of God, you'll find the very fountain of blessing that the widow at Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian found in the days of Elijah and Elisha. But, as you likely know, 
that was just more than what they could bear. And so they ran him out of town. In verse 28, when they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. They got up, drove him out of town, and brought him to the edge of the hill that their town was built on, intending to hurl him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Jesus has ran out of Nazareth, and he's on to the next stop. In Luke chapter 5 and verse number 12, Jesus engages and eventually heals a leper. This is fairly characteristic of the activity of Jesus, but it provides something of a pattern for us as well. Verse 12 of Luke chapter 5. While he was in one of the towns, a man was there who had a serious skin disease all over him, and he saw Jesus and fell face down and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Reaching out his hand, he touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. And immediately the disease left him. Now chances are, there's nothing about those two verses that surprised you. But it should. It should. And it, sp it speaks to the way Jesus is characterized or depicted in the Gospel of Luke. Listen again. He was in one of the towns, and a man there had a serious skin disease all over him, which is, I think, fair to assume is leprosy. He saw Jesus, fell face down, and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And reaching out his hand, he touched him, saying, I am willing, be made clean. Now, what's amazing in this passage, and what must have been so moving to this leprous man it wasn't even the fact that Jesus would say, I am willing, be made clean, and immediately he was healed. But that Jesus would reach forth his hand and touch him. Can you imagine how long it had been since this leprous man had felt the sensation of human touch? I mean, if you thought people freaked out about the likelihood of getting COVID, you ain't seen nothing like leprosy, Right? You were, you were put outside the city, you were physically unclean, you were ceremonially unclean, you were prohibited from worship in the temple, you were prohibited from entering into the gates, you were prohibited from sleeping in the home with your family, you were prohibited from having real meaningful contact, any contact whatsoever with your wife. You, you were dependent on the provision of those that loved you dumping some groceries outside the city gates, wherever you found camp, outside the camp, to provide for the needs that you have. And here this man finds himself close enough to Jesus to call out. And not only is Jesus willing to draw near, but reaches forth his hand and, and touches him. It is a powerful move that Jesus makes in our passage and a testament to the willingness of Jesus to, to bend, to stoop, to take the towel and the basin in service to those the world had otherwise regarded as unclean and unapproachable. Luke 6, he heals a great multitude. Let's move a little farther forward in the gospel. Uh, let's go to Luke 10, 25. I don't know if there'll be any groundbreaking observations here, but this is probably the best-known Luke-specific parable that exists and one that is often appealed to. One that ironically often is, is the main point is missed. Luke 
10.25, the scripture says, Just then an expert in the law stood up to test him. Let's see. Yeah, here we go. Just then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked them, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You answered correctly. He told him, do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. The priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed, showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told them, go and do the same. The point here is that, as has been the case thus far, the Samaritans were the hated and the despised people. I'm literally running out of places to run, right? I'll go the other way. My next move is in the other direction. So you got a priest that passes by. You know, this is the first century parallel to a pastor. One of those preachers from Longview Point came driving by and just left him laying in the ditch. And, uh, and, and this Levite came by and all these candidates for ministering to need in a given moment. And then a Samaritan comes and, and he serves him. He ministers to him. Again, Jesus is pressing this reality that these externals that have become the source of judgment for us in determining who is in and who is out really make no difference whatsoever. And Jesus is looking upon the heart, regardless of how one is regarded in the world. It is the Samaritan, the most despised of all, that is esteemed above all in this particular passage. Even more so than the priest, even more so than the Levite, it is the Samaritan that serves as a model for us. So much so that when we hear Good Samaritan today, that has an entirely positive connotation. We don't think of a Samaritan as this brigand from up in the north part of the country who always does what is terrible and who we despise by birthright, right? We think of something wholly positive when we hear of a Good Samaritan, but that could not have been further from the case in Jesus' day. Again, Jesus is sympathizing with the least of these. This is perfectly fitting with what Jesus describes his ministry as being in the Gospel of Luke. It's not a part of the outline that you have in front of you, but if you'll think for just a moment about Jesus' most forceful statement of mission in the Gospel of Luke, it comes in Luke chapter 19, within the context of his interaction with a man named Zacchaeus, that wee little man who climbed up in a tree to see what he could see. Now, you might argue that Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is a part of the establishment. He is one who enjoyed a place of privilege and some degree of prominence within that particular culture. But there is at the same time a sense in which he is very much hated as a tax collector. He is robbing from his own countrymen in service to the Roman Empire 
an occupying force within the nation of Israel. But even if you set that aside and you just say, well, Zacchaeus is this person of some prominence who enjoys some position, who is certainly a wealthy man, that, that was true until he met Jesus. And he takes the posture Jesus is constantly inviting us to take. Zacchaeus, in spite of his wealth, in spite of his influence, takes the kind of humble posture that Jesus is inviting the religious establishment itself to take. He acknowledges his wrongdoing. He acknowledges his sinfulness. He acknowledges his desperate need for Jesus. In fact, Jesus instructs him that today salvation has come to his house only after Zacchaeus stood to say to Jesus, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor Lord, and if you have extorted anything from anyone, or if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Zacchaeus is the, is the counter to the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler is on board with Jesus when he says, keep the Ten Commandments until Jesus says, sell what you have and give to the poor. Jesus never provides such an instruction for Zacchaeus. He willfully, gladly says, enthusiastically, if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll give it back fourfold. I'm glad to do so just to know you in your fullness. Jesus says today salvation has come to this house. It is not that Jesus rewards our willingness to make sacrifice or to pay penance with the gift of salvation. It is that the gift of salvation is so amazing in the, trans the, the way it transforms our heart that there is a gladness to make penance. There is a gladness to repent of our sin. There is a gladness to seek to undo what we have so dreadfully done wrong with all of our life until that moment. And then Jesus says in verse 10 of that passage, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. And it's not to seek and to save the lost as in something that's hiding in the cushions of your couch, something that has been misplaced or mislaid. And it's not the theological idea of being lost. Like in, the, in Christian circles, we speak of someone being saved or lost. This is not a theological idea so much that Jesus speaks to when he says, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus is using a very specific word here that has reference to the loss of value. I have come to restore value to those who have, by the estimation of others, lost value. I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. And assuredly, he does that in the experience of Zacchaeus and for countless others as recorded in the Gospel of Luke and for countless millions throughout the course of history. Jesus' consistent care was for the sinner. If you back up for just a moment to Luke chapter 15, we'll wrap it up right here. Luke chapter 15 is a series of parables that illustrates the priority that Jesus places on the salvation of the lost. The 15th chapter begins by noting that all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is doing what he does. He's dining with sin sinners and tax collectors, and the Pharisees and Sadducees are in the corner complaining because Jesus is dining with sinners and with tax collectors. 
And he says in verse 4, What man among you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them doesn't leave the ninety-nine in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he's found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. And then he says in verse 8, What woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her women, friends, and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me. I found the silver coin I lost. And Jesus says, I tell you, in the same way, there's joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. And then Jesus embarks upon uh, one of the longer parables, the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. And he drives home the point of the passage. The, the emphasis in the parable of the prodigal son is not on the son. It's on the older brother. In fact, most of the time, a parable only seeks to teach one principle. But there are what I call complex parables that feature three characters, and each character is proving a point. One will tend to be emphasized over the others, but each character is demonstrating some theological principle. In the parable of the lost son, we won't read through, and I'm going to assume some level of familiarity with the parable just for the sake of time tonight. From the Father, we learn the grace and the mercy of the Father. And that prodigal son thought he might be turned back. What he found was his father watching and waiting with arms wide open in this rather undignified way, running out to meet his son and embracing him, killing the fatted calf, putting the ring on his finger, and celebrating his return. We learn of the grace of God in the figure of the father in the parable of the prodigal son. In the prodigal we learn something about mercy, that it's a good thing to come home. We see ourselves in many ways reflected in the experience of the prodigal, thinking at certain points along the way that we've got it all figured out, only to learn later we didn't know a fraction of what we thought we knew. But the emphasis of the parable is on the older brother, and the way we know that is because of the way chapter 15 begins. Jesus gives the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin to emphasize the celebration that unfolds in heaven when one sinner comes to repentance. But he gives the parable of the prodigal son to demonstrate the foolishness and the callousness of the Pharisees and the scribes that would criticize the willingness of the Savior to dine with sinners and with tax collectors. And I would submit to you that there is a strong likelihood for those of us well down the road in our journey with Jesus that we would find ourselves in the sandals of the older brother far more quickly than we might the prodigal or even the father. And there's a word of warning to us here that we guard ourselves against the spirit, salvation, and forgiveness. We ought to celebrate when sinners come to repentance. Even when they've been practitioners of sin, that creates a special frustration in our heart even when they've sinned against us, or when their sin has created infringements on what we perceive to be rightly ours, our liberties, our wealth, our material possessions, freedoms that we might otherwise enjoy. There ought to be a celebration when sinners come to repentance, 
without qualification, real care or interest in what their past has held because we are invested now as brothers and sisters in what the future holds for them. There's a word of warning here against the spirit of the older brother. Are you convinced that the emphasis in Luke's gospel is on Jesus' willing willingness to go to the despised and the outcast? I really am for a variety of reasons. We've seen just a few examples of his willingness to condescend in the most magnificent of ways. But if you were to read the gospel of Luke from the very beginning to the very end, you'd find that again and again and again. Those who are outcast, those who are downtrodden, Jesus is consistently running to their side in salvation and in mercy. Aren't you glad for a Savior who came to seek and to save that which was lost? Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for the chance to spend these moments tonight in study, to reflect on the character of your son, Jesus. Thank you, Father, that your son came seeking to to save. Thank you that he sought us and bought us by his redeeming blood. Lord, thank you for all that you've done for us, that in the muck and mire of the mess we all made, that you saw fit to to come to us and to rescue us. Thank you for the grace and mercy we found in Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.